Brother, it is so good to see you. It's been far too long. Good to see you as well. There is so much going on. Can you believe the way this city is stirring? I think the people are expecting far too much from this carpenter. I'm changing my mind about him. He healed my sister, Kobiana. I'm telling you, she had been hurting for so long, and even her husband was losing his faith in God. He was convinced she was dying. We, we all were. We were deeply troubled over her sickness, but Jesus made her well. Well, everyone I've talked to believes he's a charlatan and he serves Belzebub. The council's grown weary of him, that's for sure. Yes, the Pharisees are upset, but they're upset because he speaks to them as mere men and has not been afraid to call them out for their hypocrisy. <laughs> yes, I couldn't help but chuckle to myself when I heard that he called them blind guides. No one has spoken to them like he has, and he is not afraid, that's for sure. I will say this, he has my full attention, and I look forward to a closer investigation of this man and whether he truly is the Messiah. Hmm. Please be careful, brother. He is dangerous, and I hate to remind you of this. But you were sure about Judas of Galilee, too. The authorities didn't stand for his mischief, and he perished because of it. You were lucky to get away from that man and escape ridicule. I'm telling you, this is different. Jesus has healed my sister. I have to take him seriously. No man can do the signs he has done unless God truly is with him. I know, I know. Well... At this point, it doesn't matter who he is. The council will never have him as Messiah or King. Hello and welcome to the Common Sense Gospel. I'm Danny Simmons. And I'm Kurt Norbert. And what you just heard was an account of two Jewish men living in Jerusalem during the days of Jesus. Clearly, as we've heard, they don't agree on who Jesus is, but he is on everyone's mind and they need to make a decision. Last episode, we did part one of the crucifixion and we talked about the crucifixion itself, uh, the, the way it was done and the history of the crucifixion. And we also discussed the Jewish people living under Roman rule. And, and one of the major points that we had made, Kurt, was that the Jews didn't like Rome, but Rome allowed so much freedom in, in regard to their religion that it was necessary that they play along. And just like that, the Romans didn't like the Jews at all, uh, but they were a big part of the Roman rule or, or the Roman government as far as property, and so the Romans needed to allow freedoms to the Jews in order to keep the peace. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it was a very tense situation, but there were some political advantages for for both parties, the Jewish leadership and the, the Romans. And so it was kind of a situation of we'll go along to get along. And so we have, we have the, the government and we've got the Jewish people, and, and now we're going to focus specifically on the Jewish council, the Jewish leadership, and the problems that they are facing. Jesus is now present. Uh, he is teaching. He is walking around. Um, they've questioned him many times about where, he, where he's gotten his authority from, uh, who is he, uh, and he has spoken sometimes very plainly to them, and he's spoken to them many times in parables. And so what, what we're going to do today is we're going to just use John, John's gospel, to help us move through and to watch the Jews and specifically the Jewish leadership begin to turn on Jesus. Uh, it's in John chapter 5 when Jesus goes into Jerusalem for one of the Jewish feasts that he comes into a, well, he comes to the pool of Bethesda. And there's a great multitude of sick people laying around the pool waiting for the water to be stirred. Jesus speaks to only one man who is there, and he's lame, and he asks him if he wants to be healed. 
The man says, I do, but I can't get to the water quick enough. Someone always gets there before me. Jesus simply says to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And this really, in, at least in John's gospel, this starts all the trouble. The Jews are furious that this man is walking around in Jerusalem during the feast. It's very public. He's carrying his bed because it was the Sabbath. The man who was healed eventually tells the Jews, reports back to them, that it was Jesus who healed him and told him to take up his bed and walk. And so as we move through John chapter 5, that is what's happening when you get to verse 16. It says, for this reason, it's because he told the man to walk on the Sabbath with his bed in his hand. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. This is not going to sit well with them, is it? No. And you can you can see just the nature of the leadership's attitude toward the law and toward doing what's right. Uh, historically, they had kind of assumed the religious authority in Judah, and with this kind of authority, they had become corrupt. And their attitude toward the law was really, it was secondary. Their traditions were more important. Uh, and, of course, Jesus pointed out they were abusing the people for their own gain. But they weren't really concerned about the law, although they gave it plenty of lip service and lots of meticulous observance. Mm -hmm. Still, when John says Jesus broke the Sabbath, he's not saying Jesus broke the Sabbath, that he violated the law of God. What he's saying is he didn't follow their tradition. From their viewpoint, he broke the Sabbath. And really what they're showing they're seeing in that is he is he is directly confronting our authority. And we just can't have that. We're we're the boss here. And so you can see sort of the growth of the opposition to Jesus right from the start they're they're criticizing him based on their meticulous observance of the law for example the disciples are going through the grain field picking some grain and eating it and they're why are they breaking the sabbath they're 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 basically harvesting grain why are you allowing them to do this uh, and they they eat without washing their hands first and Jesus says in another place, he, he underlines it by saying, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. You're, you're concerned about the tiniest things, and yet you grossly violate and ignore the law. Uh, so this whole attitude toward Jesus is not really based on the law of Moses. It's based on he's bucking our traditions. Therefore, he's defying our authority. We don't like that. They can't deny the miracles he's doing, so for a while they try to say, well, he's doing it by Satan's power, and Jesus blows that argument out of the water. They try to destroy his influence with the people by 
ultimately, uh, in Matthew 22, asking dishonest trick questions of him to try to, to get him to commit to a position where he can be accused by them to either the Romans or to then lessen his influence with the people. Jesus, of course, defeats that. So now the only thing left is, as you've pointed out, we need to kill him. And so this develops more and more as we go through John and as we go through Jesus' time in Jerusalem. But here's the environment Jesus was, was working in. Hmm. Many people, of course, were crowding to hear him. They wanted to hear him. He was doing great things in Israel, but the leadership was constantly stalking him. They were trying to grab anything they could hear from him to try to twist his words against him. They opposed him and ridiculed and and slandered him every opportunity they had. And yet Jesus continually, patiently went on doing the work that the Father wanted him to do. Yeah, and we're going to see some of the challenges that Jesus faces too. We're focusing on the council and, and their big problem, but Jesus has got his own things to, to work out and work through as well, um, being the Son of God and, and being perfectly righteous and never having committed any sin against man or God. Um, it, it continues when you move into John 7, uh, verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And now John, when John uses the Jews like that in that term, he, he's speaking of the leadership Mm-hmm. Uh, those who are at the top of the hill, if you will. But he's not able to go into Judea now. He's, he's in Galilee because they want to kill him. His hour has not yet come. But, but as you get to the end of chapter 6, we see that many of his followers, they're having trouble with the things that he's saying, that they, they can't process that they say these things are too hard. Who can understand it? And in their frustration, we're told that many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And we can't forget about the Lord because, you know, he watched these people walk away from him as, as he gave to them truth that will ultimately be revealed and made perfectly clear in the New Testament era that they would be alive to hear this news and this message, and yet they cannot receive it. And, and it, for the Lord to tell them something that is entirely true because of what he is setting out to do for their sake, and for them to say, we want no part of this. It's very personal. We all can get our feelings hurt, especially when we've sacrificed something of our own or done something extra to help someone and, and then to see them just say, well, we, you know, don't come over here. We don't want to hang out with you. That is very difficult. And I, I don't want to miss that as we move through this because when we move into chapter 7 and verse 1, we see that the brothers don't believe in him. So when the Feast of Tabernacles comes around, they tell him that he should go to Judea and show the works that he's been doing. You know, they're, they're making fun of him. They're saying, anyone who does works like you shouldn't be hiding that. They, they should be showing that openly. And so it says that he waited there for a little while. But in John 7 and verse 10, it says, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of 
the Jews. So, so we know now he's, he's back in Jerusalem at the feast, as he should be. The Jewish leaders are looking for him. There's obviously a strong disagreement among the people uh, and about the way that they feel about him. And it's interesting that John says no one would speak to him openly because of the fear of the Jews. This tells me that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, that he's kind of being looked at as somebody who's plagued, you know, uh, you can't be seen with this guy kind of thing. How heartbreaking would that be? Yeah, it's it's really, it's kind of an interesting situation. Of course, we know that it had gotten to the point where the, the leadership had announced that anybody who uh, confessed that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's a serious threat because what that means is you're kicked out of society. That's right. You can't work. No one's going to pay attention to you. They won't sell you any food to eat. You're, you are ostracized. So that's the fear of the Jews that the people have. I'm sure that a lot of them wanted to, to talk to him because we see them hanging on every word when he would teach. That's right. Uh, so they could stop the people from talking with him or walking with him, but when he sat down to teach in the temple or, or, or anywhere— the people would just throng and and press him to listen to every word he was saying. And they, they couldn't stop that. They wanted to throughout the Gospels that in these uh, sequences were told that they sought to lay hands on him but could, could do nothing for they feared the people. So there's a, the people are afraid of the Jews and the Jews are afraid of the people. It's, <laughs> it's just such a weird situation all because they just don't want to accept Jesus and his teaching. And uh, so all they can do is look for opportunities and plot for ways to, to just, we just need to get rid of this guy. Yeah, He's causing too much trouble. And it's, it's even among the people. And a lot of what they have to say is just out of ignorance or dishonesty. You know, we, we, who is he? We can't tell who he is. Well, he's doing wonderful things. Uh, yeah, but he's stirring up dissension and none of the leaders believe in him. And it just, it just goes on and on, back and forth. And, and as you mentioned, you can almost hear the sadness in, in Jesus' voice as the majority of the multitude turns and walks with him no more. John tells us that he turned to the apostles, the disciples, and said, do you also want to go away? It's like, you know, you're, you're the last. You're the, the ones remaining. Mm. Am I going to lose you too? Yeah. Well, at, at least at that point, they stood up and said, no, we can't go. There is nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. So such a, such a turmoil emotionally for Jesus and all of this going on among the leaders and the people their goal is to get rid of him, and they just can't figure out how to do it. Yeah, and we know from what Jesus says when he, when he looks over Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing. How I long to gather you under my wing, but you would not. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's a brokenhearted over that. So, so that has to be connected to this as well as we move through. And, and as you were saying that the— once he starts teaching the leadership, oh, they hate it, but they can't stop him. 
because the people want to hear him. Mm-hmm. And it, the other part of that to me is that they're, they're trying to get him to slip up and say something that isn't right. If they could just, so they have to let him talk. He might indict himself. Right. And, and so mm-hmm. there, there's this huge issue where it's like, Oh, every word he says just makes my blood boil. But if, if I listen closely enough, I can find some way to prove him wrong. And will they ever hear the beloved message of God with listening through that filter? Yeah, I was just thinking that that thought crossed my mind that here they are. They're listening intently to Jesus, but not because they're concerned about truth. No. They don't want to hear what he says. They just want to hear how he says it, because then maybe we can grab it and use it against him. So it's a totally hard-hearted and hateful attitude behind why they're listening to him. Yeah. They don't love God. They don't want to listen to what Jesus has to say because he keeps on condemning their actions. But they, <laughs> it's its almost like, I know this is radioactive, but I have to pick it up and do something with it. <laughs> you know, they don't want to let him speak, but they have to so that they might be able to finally get him. And it just, it never happens. Yeah. So let, let's look at the moment when he's teaching and they, they're angry about it, but they can't do anything because John tells us exactly that here in John 7, beginning in verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Then the people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So we can see here, there's a lot of things going on. He goes into the temple, which he's told us before is his father's house. He begins to teach the word of God. And again, we've got people who can't talk to him openly. They can't go up to him in one-on-one and say, hey, it's you. Can, can I ask you a question? I'm, I'm really curious about this. Can you help me with the law? If, if the Pharisees see you talking to Jesus, you're toast. But... If Jesus talks out loud and begins to teach, then they all move in to hear him and they're drawn to him and they're drawn to his message. They marvel at his wisdom and the Holy Scriptures. They said, he's never even studied and he knows the letters. How can this be? And, and Jesus tells them something that is entirely true and is his tough pill to swallow, but he's taking them somewhere. He says, none of you can keep the law of Moses. And, you know, just imagine them thinking about their own life and go, oh, okay, you know, continue, please. <laughs> I guess you're right. And he says, so why do you seek to kill me? So this group, they have no idea what he's talking about because they say, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? They seem to be oblivious to this claim that he's making. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, again, it's such a a difficult situation for everybody, but... You see who is really the master of the moment here. Jesus is now calling them out. He He's aware of what the plans are for him. Yeah. And so even though the, the people aren't aware of it necessarily, and they don't know what he's, you know, why what are you talking about wanting to kill you? 
<laughs> the leadership's listening, and you can just imagine the flash through their mind. He's on to us. You know, he, what, what's he talking about? How does he know that we want to kill him? But they're locked in <laughs> to that. They, they have left themselves no options. They're, they're really, their only choice is, as it has always been, we can either surrender to God or we can do everything possible to hold on to our position. And they've chosen the latter. That's right. So there's nowhere to go for them. Uh, and so Jesus is taking these opportunities to still proclaim the message in humility. Uh, I love what he says. He, he, he says the truth in verse 18. He says, he who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. So obviously, you know, I'm aware of this. Obviously, I am not seeking my own glory. I'm just speaking the words of the Father. So it just it just compounds this confusion on the part of the people that he's talking about things we can't understand. It seems like everything he's saying is right. I mean, what what can we do to disagree with him? Right. The it even gets to the point where they're saying, well, the the authorities know that he's here, but they're not doing anything to take him. Can he really be the Christ? Maybe maybe they know he's the Christ. And it just they're, they're just totally confused because they're not able to look past what they've been taught, what the environment is, and just listen to Jesus and accept his words at face value. Yeah, and it, it, at the end of that reading, when they say, you have a demon, who's seeking to kill you? That's the moment you know, when Jesus could lift his finger and say, see that group of guys standing over there with the funny hats on? That's who's seeking to kill me. And yet he doesn't do that. Hmm. He moves on from that question, you know, who's seeking to kill you? you? You must have a demon. Then he goes on to say, Jesus said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Now he's talking about the miracle of telling the man to stand up and take his bed. Mm-hmm. He says, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Hmm. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken... Are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. What a saying. So Jesus Mm -hmm. says to them, you're angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath. You know, is that right? Do you understand this correctly? And he says, you understand that you would gladly circumcise a boy, a, a Jewish boy who is now eight days old, if it lands on the Sabbath because you've kept the commandment of God and it's what you're supposed to do. I've made a man completely well and now you want to kill me. And then that that follow-up phrase, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so in that saying, don't you see Jesus standing there in his carpenter clothing? He's not there's nothing special about him. There's no comeliness about him that that we would be drawn to him or that we would revere him. He's saying if you peel that back and just look at it through, through, through a righteous lens, you will clearly see what's happening here. Those who appear to be righteous and holy and, and perfectly right every time may or may not be. And, and that's, that's such a great lesson for us because, you know, Kurt, I, I try to remind myself and others that even if a four-year-old kid comes up to you and says, you know, you, you're using foul language and, and this four-year-old kid comes up to you and says, hey, uh, God doesn't like it when you cuss. You know, the, if you're angry, the reaction is, oh, you don't know anything. I'm, you're just a kid. I'm a, I'm a, you, if you were an adult, you would understand. Yeah. The, the question is, 
is the statement true? Forget the fact that the kid's four years old Mm -hmm. and hasn't gone to school yet. Has what he told you found to be true? And if it is, then it's true. And so to me, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, take off take off all the garb and the special clothing and, and you know stop looking at me as a, a weak carpenter from Nazareth and just evaluate what's happening. And even then, once he says that in verse 24, you look on down through the text and see how they respond to it. They don't stop and think about that and say, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's what we need to do. They're still arguing back and forth trying to figure out who he is <laughs> and, and you know what kind of validity they can put into what he's saying. So it, they, Jesus' profound and accurate statement, it, what, what God does, he doesn't judge according to appearance. He judges righteous judgment mm-hmm. based on what is done and what is said, not what you look like. So he's trying, like you said, he's trying to get them to stop looking at me in a certain way and consider what's being said. And it just goes right past them. They, they just don't have the heart uh, to receive that. Yeah. And he's just so, so right. And like you said, it's just not registering with them. And so 25, this is where we're going to see that, that the people are, are thinking, why won't the leaders do anything about this? John seven twenty five. now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Now we have a different group who knows that someone is trying to kill him. Mm-hmm. Verse 26, but look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this truly is the Christ? Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to hear that. <laughs> However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I am from and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they, they, they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? So again, we, you know, that boiling temperature is rising and rising mm-hmm. and rising. They, these these people notice, okay, he is speaking boldly in public during the time of a feast, and the Jewish leaders are saying nothing to him. And the conclusion they reach, at least in this moment, is, do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Like, is that why they're letting him talk? Yeah. And one thing I, I like in all of this, uh, if you know me, you know I love the idea in the Bible of the faithful remnant. Oh, yeah. And... God has always had for himself a people who are loyal to him, who have not bowed the knee to whatever God or trend or tradition is in fashion at a particular time. And I think you're seeing a glimpse of that remnant here uh, in that final statement, verse 31. There were some who believed in him because they made the correct conclusion. That's right. When the Christ comes, will he do more? Uh, than what this man is doing? Exactly. So they're allowing Jesus' actions to provide the validation for him. Look at everything he's done, his wonderful works, his perfect example. Is anybody ever going to do better than that? Well, obviously not. So he must be the Christ. 
And that hearing about that really sets the Pharisees off. Yeah, that's right. Because they can't shut him down for the reasons we discussed earlier, the people are misinterpreting their posturing for belief that he is the Christ. Um, and that is going to upset them more than I think anything else in the world could possibly upset them at this point. Um, and, and that that verse begins by saying many of the people believed in him. So that's you know what you were pointing to, the, the remnant. There's some there who are able to take hold of it and say, there's something going on here. So in verse 32, it says, The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. The Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. That's how you do it. You just send somebody else to go do your dirty work. Verse 33, then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Uh, one thing I want to make sure we don't forget is that the officers have been sent by the Pharisees uh, and the chief priests. Yeah, here they're actually now making an attempt to apprehend him. So they're they're getting pretty desperate at this point. Yeah, they've had enough. So down in verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many of from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. So they sent the officers, and it tells us here that they're still trying to get him, but no one's willing to follow through with the act and actually take him. And there's, there's a couple of things here that I think are just so important. He makes a deep spiritual statement about the, about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, that out of the heart of men who, who believe in him will flow rivers of living waters. He's giving this amazing statement to those who it's not yet time for them to take hold of that because he hasn't been glorified. And yet he's putting it in front of them. He, he's giving them something to hold on to because we are coming up on it quick. And, and, and then the conclusion in 40 of the people, this is the capital P prophet. That's from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 16, when Moses said, mm -hmm. God will raise up a prophet from among your brethren, a prophet like me. And they, now they're saying, this is him. And, and the other thing to me in John's gospel, this is the, this is that point where they almost, they are so close to seeing everything for what it truly is. And they miss it just by, I don't know, just moments of time because they say, the scriptures tell us that he's from the seed of David from the town of Bethlehem. And so that's that's their hang-up. If just one person would have the courage to go to him and say, are you from Bethlehem? <laughs> you know, that would be the end of it. Yeah, and really, those who knew about Jesus, and, and remember going all the way back to John the Baptist, 
all of Judea has been living in expectation. That John the Baptist got them all thinking about, wow, what's happening next? Then the birth of Jesus was announced in, in very unusual ways, and all the people were wondering, what, what's going on? There are those there, I believe, that had to think back to that. This, we remember how this all started. That's right. You know, way back, there was th- that old prophetess Anna was talking all about him to everyone who would listen in the temple. Um, and, and what gets me, verse 42, is that they, sh- they directly contradict themselves because earlier they said, up in verse 27, as for this man, we don't know where he's from, but when the Christ comes, nowhere, no one knows where he is from. <laughs> <laughs> and then they turn around and, well, he's, he's of the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem. So we know exactly where the Messiah is coming from. That's right. I mean, this is what happens when you close your heart to hearing the truth. You, you basically make a fool of yourself. But it wouldn't have taken much, like you just pointed out, to find out where Jesus was from. And there would be some there who knew where he was from. Yeah. Uh, we remember about when we had to be registered to be taxed, and his family was in Bethlehem. They recognized Jesus just a few days before as the son of David. I know. Hosanna to the son of David. Well, where's David from? Bethlehem. So it's it just, again, this complete confusion. that Their minds are so befuddled. Satan has just clouded the issue so much that they they just they can't grasp the situation they can't stop and think okay okay let's take a step back and start from square one and figure this out they're just flying all over the place trying to to come to a conclusion concerning jesus and who he is yeah man i just they were so close and like you said they Mm -hmm. end up contradicting themselves so remember verse 31, we read earlier that the Pharisees, when they heard the crowd murmuring things concerning him, that they sent officers to take him. And finally, in verse 45, it says, Then the officers came to the chief priest and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Mm. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went, his, went to his own house. So John lets us sit in on this council argument concerning Jesus. First, the officers their job is to do what they're told. They're men of authority and power. They, they have the authority of the chief priest to do what they've been told to do. They go to get Jesus. They, st- they seem to step in on some of these teachings that he is doing, and they just say, I don't want any part of this. I would rather go back to the ones who sent us and say, I can't do it, than actually do what I was told. Here again, here's the power of Jesus' teaching. Here are men who are sent to arrest him. But when they hear him speak, they're just dumbfounded by it. We've never heard anybody talk like this. (laughs) So apparently to them, he was making some sense. 
his message was impacting them to where, like you said, they'd rather go face the, the displeasure of their superiors than carry out their mission. Um, I, I just can't help but think maybe on the day of Pentecost, these people were among the 3,000 so. that were added to the church because their words, or Jesus' words, went deep into their hearts. Yeah. And they couldn't help but think about those things in the 40 days between his resurrection and the day of Pentecost. And for them to say, no man has ever spoken like this man, it implies that includes you guys. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> that's right. We work for you and we hear you talk every day and ain't nobody talk like the way he talks. Mm. And, and it, everything they hear about Jesus makes them more angry. And I, I see why, you know, the officers who do what we tell them to do, now they've been wooed by him. We can't even get them to do what they're supposed to do. You know, it's just, it would just be so infuriating. And so they, they accuse them of being deceived. Are you deceived? And here's, here's their measuring stick. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? What's the answer to that, by the way? Uh, yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. It sure is. We know Nicodemus is, he's, it doesn't tell us right now, but he is teetering. He's asking questions. Mm-hmm. And we know Joseph of Arimathea, when you get to the end of John's gospel, it says Joseph believed secretly for fear of the Jews. Yeah. And so, yes, some of the men in that room believe in Jesus, but that's their standard. It's anyone willing to step up and say they believe in him? And no one at this point has the courage to say, uh, I do. And so Nicodemus, you know, he's got to, he wants to say, look, you know, we should do this by the law. We, we, have to, we have to hear him. We have to know what he's doing if we're going to do this right. And then they accuse him of coming from Galilee, which is a put down. Yep, that's an insult. From yep. Galilee? Yeah, so, that, you know, that just tells us they've got Jesus in a box and they're not going to let him out. And so it's an awful and terrible mistake by these men. But the tension continues to rise. If we move forward into John chapter 11 after the resurrection of Lazarus, I mean, Jesus keeps doing things that he is on the front headlines of every daily paper here. John 11 and verse 45, this is their planning now. They, they have had enough. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our, both our place and the nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would be gathered together in one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. The Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priest and the Pharisees had given a command then if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might 
sees him. So we are, it is escalating and we are getting very, very close. Yeah, and, and really they're, they're still faced with a dilemma uh, as to, to how to get this done. And Matthew kind of, uh, he lets us be the fly on the wall because he, he tells us as, as we come to the conclusion of our podcast here in chapter 26 that it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, and this was his description of what the end of the, the final judgment is going to be like. He says, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So, as we know, Jesus knows what's coming. This, this is mm. the purpose of all of his work. But now Matthew lets us know what is going on in the council chambers. He says, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So, it, like you pointed out from John and here in Matthew, it's not that they just, we need to kill this guy. Now they're actually trying to figure out how to do it. They're plotting some way to get a hold of him and do what they want to do with him. And so, what are they going to do? 